from WNYC in New York. This is America, Are We Ready? A Thursday night national call-in show for the first 100 days of the Biden presidency. Today is day 30. And this hour, we will ask America, are we ready to build back better? That's the Biden catchphrase for how he wants to restore the economy, not just to pre-COVID levels as the pandemic eventually ends, but better than before with more economic justice than before. But can he and his policies really do it? We will have a people's press conference as we take your phone calls this hour for the chairman of the House Budget Committee. And we'll ask, what would economic justice look like in your life or your line of work? America, are we ready to build back better? Are we ready for economic justice? Are we ready for the first hundred days? From WNYC in New York, this is America, Are We Ready? A Thursday night national call-in show for the first hundred days of the Biden presidency. Today is day 30. And this hour, as I said before the news, we will ask America, are we ready to build back better? That, again, is the Biden catchphrase for how he wants to restore the economy. You've probably heard that before. He says, build back better. And not just to pre-COVID levels, as the pandemic eventually eases, but better than before, he says, with more economic justice than before. But can he and his policies really do it? There is debate within the Democratic Party, and there is debate between Democrats and Republicans, of course. Front and center right now is President Biden's $1.9 trillion COVID relief bill, as most of you know, now being debated in Congress, and we'll talk about that. But we'll go beyond that, too, to the larger structural inequalities that have been plaguing our country for a long, long time. We have a very special guest to take your phone calls for the first half of the hour, and we'll bring him on right now. He is Congressman John Yarmouth of Kentucky, Louisville, to be specific, and he is the chairman of the House Budget Committee, which, as its name suggests, works on how much money the federal government will take in in taxes and how much it will spend. So, Congressman, thanks for making yourself accessible to the public like this, and Uh, welcome to America Are We Ready? Thanks, Brian. Good to be with you tonight. And listeners, you're invited to call in right now with a question for the House Budget Committee Chairman on the COVID relief bill or on bringing economic growth and economic justice long-term. We can call this a people's press conference, if you like. Uh, I get to ask some questions as the host, but you get to ask questions too. The number is 844-745-TALK. That's 844-745-8255. You can ask a specific question about any aspect of COVID relief or longer-term economic policy, and you can tell Congressman Yarmouth, Chairman Yarmouth, what you think would be most helpful for you and your family or people in your line of work, maybe, or your community. 844-745-TALK. We only ask that you keep your comments and questions brief, no long speeches, so we can give a decent number of people a chance, be nice to your fellow listeners. But you get to ask a question now of the House Budget Committee Chairman John Yarmouth, 844-745-TALK, 844-745-8255, 844-745-TALK. And Congressman, as some calls are coming in, I see you tweeted yesterday, a tale of two recoveries is emerging, but with the president's American Rescue Plan, that's the COVID relief bill, 
we can create a stronger, more equitable recovery. So before we get to the president's plan, can you describe the tale of two recoveries that you were referring to there? Well, I think what we're seeing in the economy now, Brian, is that uh, people who are in the, in the knowledge economy, people whose jobs allow them to work at home, uh, have really, really not been affected uh, significantly by the, at least economically, by the pandemic. They've been able to adjust, change their work schedules and so forth. The jobs that have been lost, the, the people who comprise the 11 or 12 million who are unemployed and many who are underemployed right now because of the pandemic are at the, the, in, in the lower, lower skilled economy. Uh, these are the people who work in hospitality or work in restaurants uh, who, and not to, not to demean uh, servers as in terms of skills because they have to have great people skills. But these are jobs that, that require less education and, and so forth. And those people have not recovered at all. Now, everyone in the country has had their life disrupted to some extent. So we're not talking about that but we're talking about just the economic recovery. And what, we're, what we also have to remember is that coming out of this pandemic, whenever we get to the other side of it, when it's, whether it's later this year or next year, I assume it's going to be later this year, the, the, the people who are going to be permanently affected or affected long term are those same, so same Americans. These are the people whose jobs may, be, may have been automated in the meantime, uh, these people in the hospitality industry, because business travel is expected to never reach the pre-pandemic levels, mm. they're, they're people who are never. going to readjust. So that's going to be a, a, a problem. Again, that's kind of the, the, the two levels of recovery. Let's take our first call right away. Here is uh-huh. Alicia in Auburn, Alabama. You're on America, Are We Ready? with the House Budget Committee Chairman, Congressman John Yarmuth. Hi, Alicia. Alicia, do we have you? All right, we'll see if we can get back to Alicia or another caller. (laughs) Meanwhile, one big debate, Congressman, between the Democrats and Republicans on the COVID relief bill is the sheer size of the bill. Republicans say it'll, it'll explode the deficit for everybody's kids, next generation, and risk causing inflation. But the president says now is the time to go big. Here he is in Tuesday's CNN town hall. We can come back. We can come roaring back. It's estimated that if we by most economists, including Wall Street firms, as well as as as, uh, you know, uh, think tanks of uh, political think tanks, left, right and center. It is estimated that if we pass this bill alone, we'll create seven million jobs this year, seven million jobs this year. President Tuesday night. But Congressman, Republicans say the government doesn't need to create jobs. When the pandemic is sufficiently over, the economy will come roaring back on its own. There's all this pent up demand. People are dying to work and start businesses and everything. So spend less and just focus it on temporary relief for the unemployed and getting people vaccinated and schools open safely. Why do you think that's wrong? Well, first of all, uh, President Biden answered most of that. It's it's not just uh, Wall Street firms, Goldman Sachs, Moody's, uh, but also the the chairman of the Federal Reserve, uh, Jerome Powell, who's also said, this is the time to go big. We we need uh, significant investment 
into the economy to get us through this. Um, you know, the, the Republican argument could be right. But the Republican argument last year, last March and April, proved to be extremely uh, wrong. And we all thought, I mean, they all thought, you know, President Trump said, we'll be, we'll be good by April. Everything will be fine. Uh, Mitch McConnell said, let's pause. Let's not, let's see how things go. And because things are going to be better in July and August and things got worse and worse through the fall. So, you know, predicting is a, a tough business uh, in, in this in this world because things change so quickly. But most everybody who's looked at this has said there is much more danger in going small than there is in going big. And that's I, I think I, I agree with that. You know, Jerome Powell said we have plenty of fiscal space uh, to to make these kind of investments in the country and that the the. Uh, the rebound in terms of employment, particularly, will be much faster if we invest this money now. That we will be by early next year at uh, at pre close to pre-pandemic levels in employment. If we don't make this investment now, it'll be 2023 or 2024 to, until we get there. So, you know, no, there are no certainties in this business, but we we have um, we have made mistakes throughout this pandemic crisis in in patchwork and and uh, smaller investments even though they've totaled they've ended up totaling a, a significant amount that um, we we could have probably had a greater impact early on if we had gone gone larger mm. we need to do that now I, I don't think again there, there is a significant risk that um, we will have a much more delayed, a much longer uh, recovery By than going too small. so big. Yeah. Yeah. Valerie in Allentown, Pennsylvania. You're on America. Are we ready? Hi, Valerie. Well, maybe we're Hi, having how some... are you? Oh, oh, there we go. Now we have a caller. Woo. <laughs> Hi, Valerie. You're on the air. Yeah. Um, I'm listening to everybody's point of view and... Uh, been through this before with economic recovery, and I am concerned about the uh, amount of money that is being proposed right now. And um, I have a complete opposite view. I think we need to take baby steps, and um, before we take all this money and put it into um, people trying to come over to this country and the fifteen dollar an hour um, minimum wage. We need to go slow. We need to go slow and not be like a, 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 a bull in a china shop and go head head first into it and then look back and say, oh, I should have waited. So, yeah, I have a completely different view. We need to go take baby steps. Thank you for your call, Valerie. Yeah. And we're going to be dealing with both of those issues, immigration and the $15 minimum wage, in the second half of the hour with our other guests let me get another call on right away, and it's Alexander in Rochester, Minnesota. Alexander, you're on America. Are we ready? Hi. Hey, thank you, and uh, thank you for allowing me to speak. Uh, it's very simple. We don't need this, uh, what I call, American bailout. We can ask Congress to do three things that will be better and in in more long-term for the economy. Number one, increase the minimum wage nationwide to $15 an hour. That'll put a lot more money into the economy and make Wall Street happy. 
continue to do what Donald Trump did, import tariffs to protect American American manufacturing and increase good-paying jobs in America. And number three, really dump Obamacare and, and enlist uh, Medicare for all so we can have lower health care costs for everyone and have better health care for everyone. It's social economic justice right on down the line. And I'm an old white man that believes in uh, in in better uh, better income, better lives for everyone, including yeah. Wall Street. Alexander, thank you very much. We're going to leave it there for time. So that's an indication, Congressman, of how there are divides between um, more centrist, if that's the right word, and more progressive wings of the Democratic Party. Well, sure. But, you know, I I think there's actually a pretty significant consensus among Democrats and independents and even a majority of Republicans who support uh, the president's American Rescue Plan. And you know, I, I don't uh, I don't take issue with uh, the comments about health care. I'm for Medicare for all or some kind of single payer. I, I think we'll end up getting there. There's there's really no alternative to it. Um, I'm for raising the minimum wage to fifteen dollars an hour. That's part of the program, uh, the, the legislation we're considering now. I'm not sure that it will end up in the final product because we've got some very esoteric uh complexities in Senate in the Senate procedures that may not allow us to do that. But um, if we don't get it done in this package, we'll, we're going to pursue it on its own basis. Um, so, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't have a problem with that. I, I think what, one thing you have to, everybody Hang has on, to... Hold, hold that thought for a second because we have to take a break. We'll continue in a minute and let Congressman Yarmouth finish that answer. It's America, Are We Ready? Our Thursday night national call-in show for the first 100 days of the Biden presidency. Today is day 30. I'm Brian Lehrer, and we're asking, are we ready to build the economy back better than it was before the pandemic? Does Biden have the right policies to advance economic justice to a better place than it was in before? We're having a kind of people's press conference in this half of the hour for the chairman of the House Budget Committee, Congressman John Yarmouth of Kentucky at 844-745-TALK, 844-745-8255. And Congressman, did you want to finish that thought you started before the break? Well, I I think that... uh what I was going to say was this goes back to the introduction of the show when, when we have um, two different types of recovery and, you know, we, we still have so many millions of people who are, um, who are uh, hurting economically. We, we still have many small businesses that are suffering or closing. And we have, for instance, I just talking to my uh, airport director the other day, and this is true of airports all over the country, their revenues are down 50 to 60% over the last year. So p- this pandemic has endangered uh, a lot of our important economic infrastructure. And that's why so many of the things that we're doing now uh, are important to sustain a recovery when we actually get past the pandemic problems. Um, I want to ask you a question that's relevant to your state and is a big topic of both debate and President Biden's long-term vision for the economy and the environment, his push to transition to renewable energy. You have coal mining in your state, and some in your state are skeptical when they hear the president say things like this. When I think of climate change, I think of, and the answers to it, I think of jobs. 
A key plank of our Build Back Better recovery plan is building a modern, resilient climate infrastructure and clean energy future that will create millions of good-paying union jobs, not seven, eight, ten, twelve dollars an hour, but prevailing wage and benefits. Congressman, a lot of people don't believe this can be a one-for-one trade-off. Like, are those new green energy jobs in wind and solar and other sectors really going to be located in Appalachia to provide a glide path for the coal workers who'll be displaced, for example? A lot of people don't think that's going to happen. Well, that's right. Uh, but the fact remains there are more people engaged in in uh, renewable fuels, uh, winds, power, solar power right now in the United States than there are in, in, in coal extraction. Uh, we have almost nobody working on the coal mines in Appalachia and Kentucky right now. It's basically a dead industry. We have some uh, people working in coal in western Kentucky, which is strip mining, but the deep mining is gone. And so, and, and yes, those they won't necessarily transition into uh, the, the wind and, and solar jobs, but uh, some of them will. But we're going to have to have a, a significant uh, recovery program for them or basically just like a universal basic income for a lot of these people who are being displaced by the, the switch from fossil fuels to uh, to renewables. And I think that's a good investment for the country. And, and uh, so uh, we'll have that debate. Uh, we'll have it pretty soon because the president's one of the president's top priorities is to do this uh, infrastructure, major infrastructure program with a, a an emphasis on on uh, on climate uh, climate change policy. That's right, Drew in Hamilton, Ohio. You're on America. Are we ready? Hi, Drew. Hello. Um, I was wondering why people are so keen to spend money on wars overseas that are primarily for oil a lot of the times, it would seem, instead of directly helping people out when they need it? Yeah, I am too. Good point. Um, you know, we it's you know, we have a country where we have tons of different perspectives and that's one of the beauties of, of the beautiful things about this country is we do have amazing diversity in so many ways. And you know, unfortunately, the, the Congress in recent years has not been able to kind of take that diversity and and put it through a funnel and and come out with a, uh, a policy that has buy in from most Americans. I think right now when you see polling that shows that somewhere in the high 60 percent or uh, up to the high 70 percent of the American people support the president's American rescue plan. That that's about as much of a consensus as you're ever going to get. So, you know, I, I think that's uh, that's an indication of, of how how um, appropriate this approach is for the dilemma that we are in right now. And uh, <clears throat> you know, we we need to we need to have um, we need to have more. Pre- Voices like yours, Drew, in the, in the the national debate, but unfortunately, the national debate up until now has has just been who has the best, who gets the best electoral advantage out of any position. It's not really trying to find the right policy to benefit the most Americans, and we have to, Congress needs to to figure out how to do that, or we're going to we're just not going to be doing the job that we were elected to do. 
It was a big contradiction. I believe in the Trump administration, though it's outside the footprint of this show to explore it very much, he wanted to withdraw the U.S. militarily from the you know, much of the world, but he also wanted to really ramp up defense spending and have the biggest, baddest military in the world. And I never kind of figured out how those two <laughs> yeah. things fit together. But Alu Sign in Brockton, Massachusetts, you're on America. Are we ready? Hello, Alu Sign. Hey, how are we all doing? Thank you very much for taking my call. We appreciate your making the call. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I'm a 64-year-old guy. And I've been in this country for 18 years now. But my problem with, you know, a few things is the educational side that brings about economic justice. And my problem is, why is it that schools in the same city and state get funded differently and one happens to be affecting those that we're talking about minorities. You're saying there's more funding going to the schools in the wealthier neighborhoods, right? Absolutely. Right. Sign, thank you very much. And it's you a know, huge, it's Go a huge ahead, Congressman. You take it, well, Ken. It's a, it's a huge national problem. I, uh, you know, a lot of it has to do with tax bases, but and that's why why federal policy needs to be. Uh, even though the federal government only funds 10% of education in the country, the, the, the state and local governments f fund 90%, but the, the, the federal government has to be the equalizer there, has to step in when those kind of uh, disparities occur. And, you know, that's what we did with originally tried to do with No Child Left Behind. That's what we did with uh, the Every Child Learns Act the last couple of years. Um, so you've identified a real serious problem, and, and that's the federal government's role to, to, um, to correct those disparities. In some kind of fantasy world, I could imagine <laughs> a constitutional amendment to outlaw the funding of public schools based on property taxes, because property taxes obviously reflect the wealth of the immediate neighborhood and contribute to that funding disparity, um, and yet it's just all over America. It is just endemic. But uh, again, I guess that's, that's for another show. <laughs> Beyond the COVID relief bill, if we're ever to approach economic justice in this country, I'm curious if you support H.R. 40, the bill to establish a commission to study a way to provide reparations to African Americans for slavery. The stat, as Politico had it today, is that black Americans comprise 13% of the nation's population, but constitute less than 3% of its wealth. So I have a two-part question. Do you agree that that gaping disparity is the result of 400 years of racial injustice? And do you support H.R. 40 to study reparations as a potential remedy? remedy? Yes, and yes. I actually am a co-sponsor of H.R. 40, uh -huh. so I do support it. And, you know, th there were two dramatic things I saw just in the last couple of days, both involving appraisals of real estate. And so if you think systemic racism doesn't exist, uh, there was one couple, and I forget where they were, but th it was a black couple, and they their home was appraised uh, for, it was a good, nice home, $900,000. But they were suspicious of this, and they had a white couple go in and get an appraisal on that house, and it appraised for $1.5 million. 
So it was 50% higher appraisal when a white couple had the same house appraised. And there was another situation in which a mixed couple, uh, a mixed race couple, did the, did the same thing. And there was a similar type of disparity. I mean, this is stuff that in 2021 cannot be allowed to happen. Uh, it's just, it's just, it, it goes to your gut. I mean, this is... This is, it's sickening is what it is. And, and these are the types of things that, uh, you know, we have a, a, the John Lewis uh, bill that's up, uh, uh, that we're going to vote on in a few weeks to try and change, make sure that uh, voting rights are, are respected and, and are, uh, there's not discrimination in the voting uh, and voter suppression in, in our elections. But these are the things that uh, we cannot uh, let go on in this country. The, this type of racism. So yeah, uh, we need to work on a a comprehensive uh, approach to this type of th- to the implications and the the manifestations of racism in the country. Let's take one more for you. Then we're going to bring on other guests and listeners. We'll keep taking your calls <laughs> for them. Regina <laughs> in Brooklyn, you're on America. Are we ready with the House Budget Committee Chairman John Yarmuth? Hi, Regina. Hi there. Um, I would just like to know whether the um, Democrats could use the budget reconciliation process to undo the 2017 tax cuts, and if that's part of the package being considered. Yes, we can. Uh, The Republicans used reconciliation to pass the 2017 tax cuts. Um, And we should say that's a parliamentary maneuver that allows the Senate to pass something without having to get to the 60 vote margin. It can pass it without uh, with just 51 votes if it's about a budget item. Right. Right. Exactly. So we can do that. I would say that the next we can do two reconciliation bills this year. One we're doing now. We can do another. That's for fiscal 21. We can do another one for fiscal 22, which we're going to start working on in April uh, that I am sure will include some tax provisions. I don't. There won't be a wholesale repeal of the 2017 Act, but there will be provisions because one we anticipate at this point that the president's infrastructure plan or something similar to it will will be done through reconciliation. And part of the way we're going to pay for that is to to roll back some of those tax cuts that were in the 2017 bill. Congressman John Yarmuth, Democrat from Louisville and chairman of the House Budget Committee, thank you so much for being so generous with your time and coming on America. Are we ready? We really appreciate it. My pleasure, Brian. Good to be with you. This is America. Are we ready? I'm Brian Lehrer. Now, part two of this hour, asking if we're ready for economic justice. We're going to bring on two other guests, and we're going to ask a new caller question. The People's Press Conference with Congressman Yarmuth is over. He's gone. Here's the new question, and listeners, if you are hanging on to talk to the congressman, we ask that you clear the lines for other listeners. What would economic justice look like in your life or in your line of work, and what's a policy from President Biden that could help make that a reality? 844-745-TALK, 844-745-8255. Make this as personal or local as you can. Just like in the first half, we're going to ask you to keep it brief so we can give a decent number of people a chance, but you're invited right now to call and tell people all around the country what would economic justice look like in your life or in your line of work, and what's a policy? Name one policy, if you have one in mind, from President Biden 
that could help make that a reality. 844-745-TALK, 844-745-8255. And as your calls are coming in, we do welcome two new guests, both of whom have the Biden administration's ear. William Spriggs was the Assistant Secretary of Labor for Policy in President Obama's first term. He is now Chief Economist for the AFL-CIO and an economics professor at Howard University. Thea Lee is president of the Economic Policy Institute, a liberal economics think tank. She has a background in international trade economics and is co-author of a book called The Field Guide to the Global Economy. Professor Spriggs and President Lee, thanks for coming on. Welcome to America. Are we ready? Thanks for having us. Thanks, Brian. It's a delight to be here. And let me start you off with a version of our caller question in a one-minute answer to start out, if you can. What's one policy from President Biden that could help advance economic justice beyond the COVID relief bill? I'm assuming a post-pandemic world here and the long-term view, given the chronic inequality that plagues our nation. So start pushing that out with one big policy you'd like to see, Ms. Lee. Could I ask you to go first? Sure. Thanks, Brian. What I would say is labor law reform, and there's a bill called the PRO Act, the Protecting the Right to Organize, because I think what's wrong with the economy right now is there's an imbalance of bargaining power, that working people have been pushed around and shut down and uh, marginalized for too long. And so making sure that workers can come together at the workplace, join their voices, and have the power, the collective power to bargain with their employer, I think is a really great start. It's a democratic way of rebalancing bargaining power in the labor market. Professor Spriggs, same question. You're one big thing to launch this conversation. Well, uh, since Thea mentioned my one, uh, (laughs) my number two... intergenerational issue, which is student debt. We cannot continue on a policy that asks families to provide the basis for higher education. We did not ask that of any other generation, and we're not going to be able to sustain families paying for our higher education system we won't get enough educated people. We won't be ready for the 21st century. And so when we go to the correct policies that makes higher education affordable, we will have saddled one generation and one generation only with the debt of that mistake. So I think as a matter of equity, we have to wipe that slate clean for that generation so we can move on so we can have a reasonable policy to educate Americans going forward. You know, when we come back after a break, I want to follow up on that since you mentioned student debt, because I pulled a clip from President Biden's CNN town hall on Tuesday night in which I think he didn't give the questioner from the audience the answer she was looking for uh, on an aggressive enough debt relief program from him. So I'm going to play that, and since you brought it up, get you to follow up. Um, but, Professor Spriggs, we have 30 seconds before we have to take that break. Do you want to elaborate elaborate on Thea Lee's number one, since it's your number one, too? It's not one that people hear all the time. What would that look like in 30 seconds? 
restoring democracy with a little d it's important for workers to have a voice in the whole system of our economy and we currently have locked workers out that's why we have these distortions politically this is america are we ready that was a very efficient follow-up answer thank you very much and we'll continue in a minute It's America, Are We Ready? Our Thursday night national call-in show for the first 100 days of the Biden presidency. I'm Brian Lehrer. Today is day 30, and we're asking, are we ready to build the economy back better and more just than it was before the pandemic? My guests are Thea Lee, president of the Economic Policy Institute Think Tank, and William Spriggs, chief economist for the AFL-CIO, former Assistant Secretary of Labor under President Obama and a Howard University economics professor. And the question for you callers is, what would economic justice look like in your life or in your line of work? And what's a policy from President Biden that could help make that a reality? 844-745-TALK. And Calvin in Atlanta, you're on America. Are we ready? Hi, Calvin. Thanks so much for calling in. Uh, hi, Brian. Uh, thank you so much for taking my call. Um, what um, economic justice would look like for me um, would be equitable access uh, to the accumulation of investment capital for African Americans. Uh, and a policy that I think would be helpful in that regard is to require the Federal Reserve Bank and the Securities and Exchange Commission uh, to, to, to require disclosure of what corporate entities are investing uh, in the African-American community that would improve the quality of life in that community um, and, and, and improve the uh, ability to create wealth. How? Uh, I would say by disclosing those investments, for example, you have the Community Reinvestment Act, uh, you have, in the case of the Securities Exchange Commission, things that are being disclosed to investors in terms of uh, a corporation's behavior, how they're investing some of their, their, their funds. You know, many of these corporations have uh, venture capital funds and other kinds of funds. Uh, and even uh, looking at uh, the uh, Iliamazin area or philanthropic uh, communities in terms of how they're uh, investing those dollars to a metric uh, that would not just financial uh, quantitative metrics, but also qualitative metrics that in- include the deep impact on quality of life. Calvin, thank you so much for that. Let's go next to Samuel in Wyndham, Connecticut. Samuel, you're on America. Are we ready? Hi there. Hi. Thank you so much for taking my call. Sure. Um, I would just like to say that the best way for bringing equality for economic diversity Sorry, uh, economic equality, from my mind, would either be through, just from my own experience, some form of higher-level rental assistance than what is available through the states. I know that my fiancé and I are just above the level where we we don't count or aren't able to apply for any of our uh, state programs in Connecticut or through some form of a stipend for childcare since we just recently had our first daughter and 
you know, I, it is a blessing that I was able to find a work from home position at the beginning of the pandemic. But if I was not able to work from home where I can, you know, take care of her and watch her during the day, we would not be able to afford both rent and mm -hmm. child care. Do you want to put uh, a number on it? Uh, would you be willing to do that since you're calling for a higher threshold to be eligible for rental assistance? So currently the two of us make around $40,000 for the year and we are just making our $1,000 per month rent. So perhaps going up to Forty-five or fifty thousand. That way, if your rent is, you know, one thousand or fifteen hundred dollars per month, depending on your area, we are pretty blessed to be in a lower rent area. Samuel, I I get it. And wow, I thought you were going to say something more than that. Forty thousand for a family of three is really low, and it's definitely low in Connecticut. So, Thea Lee, would you like to comment on that set of callers and anything else you want to add? Sure, and um, thanks thanks to both the callers. I think in, in terms of what Samuel was raising with rental assistance, child care stipends, and so on, I mean, some of this is really a, a result of the fact that wages haven't grown in the United States for a couple of decades as much as they ought to have. This is it. It's a wealthy economy, it's a healthy economy, or it's a growing economy, and yet average working people haven't gotten their share, and all the costs are squeezing people. Education, health care, rent, um, child care. And so, you know, we need to do both things. We need to boost people's incomes, and we also need to figure out how we can make sure that some of these essentials of life are affordable folks. And I appreciate the call from Calvin as well in terms of, just trying to make more information available about what corporations are doing and where the investments are happening because we can see that there's a lot of inequity, and particularly along racial lines, that, that happens in terms of multinational corporations and their investment roles. And I do think that, and I, I'm actually interested in what Bill Spriggs has to say on this, that the Federal Reserve could be playing a role to ensure more, more equity, more justice, more transparency than we have right now. Professor Spriggs, she teed you up. Yes, and we have a Consumer Financial Protection Board precisely because the Federal Reserve refused to do its job. Many people did not know that it was one of the major civil rights civil rights enforcement agencies in the government. And can I just say, so people know what we're talking about, and it doesn't sound like uh, bureaucratic soup, the Consumer Financial Protection Board, that's that thing that Elizabeth Warren thought up and promoted that is supposed to prevent people from uh, finance sector abuse, correct? That's correct. It's to prevent predatory behavior on the, uh, on that's taken place by financial and, uh, entities like payday lenders and uh, usurious activities of auto dealers who we know discriminate against minorities when they go to get auto loans. It was meant to stop things like that. But broadly, the Federal Reserve originally had responsibility for preventing discrimination in credit access. It, is, it refused to do it. It continues to be so lax in monitoring anti-discrimination that we got the Great Recession because the activity of not the banks they regulate, 
but they're cousins <laughs> who uh, are part of the same holding company uh, were preying on, on black households and discriminating and lending. That's how we got the subprime crisis. So absolutely, we need a lot more transparency on corporations. We, as unions, cannot take money from our members for political purposes, but corporations can take our money from our pension funds and spend it on politicians and political activities that we don't like. Uh, so uh, it's not a level playing field at all, and we need a lot more transparency so we know when they're creating international risk for us because activities they do overseas, and when they do things domestically. As you know, we found out many of them were underwriting some of the far-right activities that led to what happened with the attack on the Capitol, and then they backed away from it. So we we need to know far more what they're doing. We don't have uh, a fair playing field because the level of inequality is so high now. Um, we're, we're very close to the verge where over half the income in the United States is worth the top 10%. It's already with like the top 15%. But that also means the purchasing power in the economy is in the hands of a few people. Mm-hmm. And that means that markets tilt to them. The key markets where rich people don't spend as much or spend a lot more, spend a lot more than everybody else, is housing, education, health care. And so the prices in those marketplaces have bent towards them, their needs, and their desires. And so we end up with markets that function for them. So housing prices have remained reasonable if you're in the top 10%. They have not remained reasonable for people in the middle, and the gap continues to grow, and it's not sustainable going forward that we, meaning the bulk of Americans, we, mm-hmm. um, are stressed when it comes to rental payments, to child care payments, and to higher education payments. Right. So it's not sustainable. Let's see what a few more callers want to put on the table. Andy in Gainesville, you're on America. Are we ready? Hi, Andy. Hi. What you got? Yeah, so I'd, I'd, like, to, I'd like to see a, uh, a limitation put on uh, how far back companies can, can look in your criminal record. Uh, for the purposes of hiring? As, yes, as uh, an economic justice proposal. Thank you. Debbie in White Plains, uh, New York. You're on America. Are we ready? Hi, Debbie. Hey, good evening, Brian. Um, let's bring back a public works administration, which was a, a government program for construction jobs, I mean, and, and other high-paying or or decent paying jobs and let's have a summer jobs program for all youth like juniors and seniors in high school who want them um and i'm i'm all for more labor unions and especially for home health aides and people who work with the disabled and help the disabled because they are paid so miserably Debbie, thank, thank you. Thank you so much. One more for now. Harvey in Minneapolis. You're on America. Are we ready? Hi, Hi. Harvey. Hi. Thanks for taking my call. Um, sure. One thing I'd like to see is cancellation of student debt up to $50,000. There's a lot of calls for that right now. 
Um, but I'd like to pose a question to the experts on right now going forward. On top of that cancellation of student debt, what can we do policy-wise to make that, you know, higher education economically viable uh, for low-income people moving forward and not just canceling debt now and then doing nothing about it down the road? Thank you very much. So we've got those those three callers on the table, and I said I was going <clears> to <throat> play this clip um, of the president in his CNN town hall on Tuesday night rele relevant to, to Harvey's call right there. So here's an exchange in which a woman in the audience asks a question about student debt. Debt is many people's only option for a degree. We need student loan forgiveness beyond the potential $10,000 your administration has proposed. We need at least a $50,000 minimum. What will you do to make that happen? I will not make that happen. It depends on whether or not you go to a private university or a public university. It depends on the idea that I say to a community, I'm going to forgive the debt, the billions of dollars of debt for people who have gone to Harvard and Yale and Penn and schools, my children. I went to a great school, I went to a state school. Um, but is that gonna be forgiven rather than use that money to provide for early education for young uh, children who are come from disadvantaged circumstances? But here's what I think. I think everyone, and I've been proposing this for four years, Everyone should be able to go to community college for free. Professor Spriggs, let me stay with you on this since you brought up student debt before as a top issue for economic justice. Would you react to that exchange and the president's position that $50,000 of student debt relief would be too much because it would give too much money from people of ordinary means to people who chose expensive private colleges? because there's a deeper issue of higher education equity, and we're not addressing that. As an example, um, black students who attend historically black colleges are attending schools that don't have resources. If those students had, had been admitted to a Harvard, Harvard has the resources to not leave their students with debt. When you look at what we're really doing under our current system is students who go to very well-resourced schools often leave with little debt. It's the students who go to the public universities, hmm. who go to the low-cost universities, the universities that don't have the resources where the debt actually occurs. Now, that's the deep issue here. It gets back to the question of reparations. Because reparations isn't just about individuals, it's about institutions. It's why does Harvard, which benefited from American slavery, have billions of dollars in its endowment, and Howard, which gave us the vice president of the United States, doesn't. Boom. The university um. founded for ex-slaves. So, so, so when you understand the reasons for the debt, the debt is really because middle-income students, low-income students don't have access to the elite schools with the resources. They only have access to the schools that give them the opportunity to go to school but don't have the resources to make college free. That's we, where the debt comes from. We have two minutes left in the show, and Ms. Lee, let me ask you a final question. And I see you first started at Economic Policy Institute as an international trade economist. Many people say 
bad trade policy from both Republicans and Democrats is one of the biggest reasons Donald Trump got elected in 2016. We traded away whole manufacturing industries for the promise of a higher tech, higher wage, higher education required economy. And for so many people, it didn't work out. Tell me if you agree with that premise in our last minute or so. And did President Trump, no matter what else he may have done, begin to right that ship through new approaches to NAFTA and to China? That's a great question, Brian, in a couple of minutes. And I would say absolutely that the U.S. trade policy over the last couple of decades, as you say, through both Republican and Democratic administrations, really sold out American workers because it prioritized the profits and the interests of multinational corporations and the outsourcing, and it um, shortchanged U.S. production and manufacturing. Unfortunately, I think Donald Trump talked a good game, but he did not deliver on trade. And he, uh, his trade policy was erratic. It was egotistical. It was um, not not coherent. And so there is an opportunity, I think, for the Biden administration to do a better job to prioritize the interests of working people and good jobs in the United States and really get our trade policy back on track. We've got a few more seconds. What could really do that? I mean, if Trump was blowing smoke when he said he's going to bring all the jobs back from China, what does create well-paying manufacturing jobs of the next generation? Where do they come from? Well, I, I, I think our trade policy could focus on a couple of things. I would say currency, which is a little bit of a technical issue, but also workers' rights and uh, enforcing our trade laws. And those three things, addressing currency manipulation, protecting workers' rights, and making sure that we are aggressively and consistently and transparently enforcing our trade laws, right. doing that and doing, and this goes to Debbie, Debbie's uh, point about the Public Works Administration, but uh-huh. also investing in America and in and infrastructure there. and in technology and, and clean energy here in the United and, States. And there we have to leave it. That's America. Are we ready for this week? We're here every Thursday night for the first 100 days of the Biden presidency. Thanks to all our guests tonight. Jim Yarmouth before, Thea Lee and William Spriggs, thank you so much for doing the second half tonight. And we'll be back next Thursday, day 37. I invite you to listen to my national politics podcast in the meantime called Brian Lehrer, a daily politics podcast, or just join me back here next Thursday night for America. Are we ready? <laughs>